Hey everyone, it's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival, and you're going to hear a lot of talk among preppers about developing a survival mindset. You know, that will to survive at all costs using whatever means necessary. But there's another aspect of the mental game of survival that you also must acquire, one that's even harder for most people to digest, and that's developing your combat mindset. I'll tell you what that means and give you the five questions you need to ask yourself now before you're faced with a disaster, crisis, or collapse. Check this out. bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging, would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. Okay, this week's broadcast was really precipitated by a, a comment that I saw from one of our readers on a blog post we did about the nine looting hotspots that you need to avoid in a collapse. And the commenter's handle on, on the blog is Nidan215, N-I-D-A-N-215. I want to thank him for leaving these comments because I always love it when people have real-world experience that applies to the things that we talk about in the blog. And you'll hear me talk a lot about different, you know, combat experience I had, riot experience I had, survival experience I had. And I, I, this was great because it was somebody that was in the National Guard during the uh, couple of different incidents that we had here in the United States. So this is good because it's not even like a, a foreign combat zone. This is something that happened right here. So this, he was in the National Guard during the, the LA riots, um, in the early 90s, as well as dispatched out to the Loma Prieta earthquake. That was in 1989, I think it was in the Bay Area, and and called out there for, you know, disaster relief. And when I had asked him to share some of his stories, he, he left a, a really good comment with an, an example during the earthquake. So I wanted to read this real quick because this is really where this comes from, uh, our, our topic for today comes from. So here's what he had to say. In regards to the earthquake natural disaster, we set up a tent city in Freedom, Watsonville. We took in so many people who arrived with no shoes, jackets, or food. It was raining and cold to the point that you could see your breath hanging in the air. The donations of clothing and other items started pouring in, but the Red Cross coordinator didn't allow us to categorize the items or assist people to sort through it to fill their individual needs. Donations were simply thrown on top of pallets, laid on the ground, and it got wet. Then it happened. People who had no need of assistance started showing up and looting through the donations and just taking bags full of clothing that was meant for the needy. Several times I had to break up altercations of people who were in desperate need of a jacket, trying to pull those items away from the looters, who were most probably there taking the donations to sell to their on their own yard sales for profit. I hope I'll never be caught in that situation, and through my preps never seem to be complete. No, and though my preps never seem to be complete, at least I know that my family simply has to grab that go bag and have socks, boots, T-shirts, a jacket, water, and a bit of food, ammo, spare mags, and a machete. I know I'm preaching to the choir here when I say take Jeff's tips and tricks to heart because you never know, and I mean never, want to end up in a situation like that. So this is this is great because it, it really does highlight the human behaviors that you're going to face in any sort of a collapse. And when I started thinking about this with the, the there's a difference between survival mindset and combat mindset. 
Now, in survival mindset, we talk about the need to be prepared for any sort of a disaster or anything like that. So we talk about, you know, uh, having enough food. We talk about having enough water. We talk about having enough supplies and being able to be self-reliant during any sort of a disaster. Even, even if things get really, really tough, even for an extended disaster, if you're prepared to go through it mentally and with the right gear, I know most of the people that are listening right now are going to be okay. But there is another aspect of this because the real threat may not even be the disaster. It's going to be the other people that are caught up in the disaster because unlike you, hopefully, they're not going to be as prepared with food and water and shelter and security. And that makes them a danger. Now, when we go back to the early pioneer days, they had the same type of challenges, didn't they? I mean, they had to survive. They, you know, had to survive the weather. They didn't have the kind of, you know, heating that we had or air conditioning that we had or, or any of those luxuries that we take for granted. They had to survive on growing their own food, hunting their own food, creating their own, uh, their own supplies, basically. Okay. But didn't they also have a combat threat as well? I mean, they faced, I mean, basically, if you think about like the Wild West and, and pioneering, it's not like they had, they had law enforcement riding around all over the place on on horseback, okay? They normally only had a few people in town to try and keep law and order, but it was still the wild. That's why it's called the Wild West, right? They also had uh, Indians that might be uh, hostile in those territories, okay? So they had the threat of other people as well. Now, back then, you just – you had a gun, Right. Everybody, everybody, you knew that you needed a gun, whether it was for hunting or whether it was for personal defense, you had a weapon. But it was also the mindset that you needed to have to be able to defend who, you know, yourself and your property back in those times. So when I started thinking about this, there were five questions that I came up with that you really should ask yourself now when it comes to preparing yourself with a combat mindset. Again, it's different than a survival mindset. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna share these five questions with you now. Why you need to ask yourself them, and I I, I beg you to on it answer honestly, okay? Because this is what's gonna give you the best the best means of preparing is to be able to answer these honestly to yourself, and where you see a gap, be able to plug those in. Okay, so question number one is how much do you trust your neighbors? Now you might. Have dinner with your neighbors. You go to parties with your neighbors. You might be very, very good friends with your neighbors. Okay. You go and you borrow the lawnmower when yours breaks down, whatever it is. Okay. We, we always want to be friendly with our neighbors. Okay. And, but not an and, <laughs> this is a but, but what we've seen time and time again is that during the hardest times when, when people are really, uh, when they're really facing a crisis, that something can change in people. Now, you might not think of your neighbors in that way. You might think this could never happen, but you have to understand that when somebody's family is starving, if this truly is a situation where supplies are, are cut off, there is you know, limited food and water. Water could be contaminated. It could be just that electricity is out. It could be a lot of different factors that could be stressing people out. When people get stressed, when they get desperate, they have the propensity to get actually to, to, to get um, violent. Okay. And one example I like to use with this is there was a, a, a carnival cruise line had a, a fire. I don't know if you remember this. This was back in 2010. 
And the Carnival Cruise Line, you know, the luxury cruise, you go out on vacation, you're out there, you know, all you can eat buffets and swimming in the pool and dropping off at different ports. Well, Carnival Cruise Line had a fire, an engine fire out away from uh, land and it cut off their electricity. It cut off their water. It cut off um, any sort of heating, anything like that. All of their electricity was gone. There were 4,500 people on the boat when the power went out. They didn't even have radio transmission at the time. Okay. Now, People were, people found themselves just trying to survive on the boat. So there were no toilets at the time, so they were relieving themselves in plastic bags. There was no heating or air conditioning, so a lot of people were sleeping, because there was no air conditioning, they were sleeping out on the deck, so they were sleeping out in the hallways to be able to be, to be cooler. Now there was no heating for food, so all the food had to be served cold, what they had there. A lot of the food spoiled because there was no refrigeration at all. And within just a few days, there were fistfights breaking out in those buffet lines from people that were, again, desperate, scared, panicked, uh, afraid, hungry, okay, lack of water that was there. So they were stressed out. And it, it only took two days for people on a pleasure cruise, I'm going to remind you, to really get violent. Okay. Now I understand that that's not your neighbors. Okay. These would be strangers that are looking out for their family who didn't get enough cold, you know, eggs or whatever they were trying to serve there, uh, in order to, in order to feed their families. But how, how, how much you trust your, your neighbors really also has to go with how much you're telling your neighbors. Because if you're, if they know that you have extra food set aside, if you have survival food, if you have extra supplies, if they, even if they know that you're into survival and into prepping, that knock is going to come on the door and your friendly neighbors are going to friendly, friendly, I don't know what that word is. They're going to ask you in a very friendly way if you can help them out. And you're going to either have to say yes or no. Of course, you might have enough supplies that you can help somebody out, especially if you only consider it to be a short-term sort of a disaster or something like that. Okay, it certainly helps to do that. But if it's something that's going to be longer term, you're going to have to make that decision of whether or not you can take care of other people besides yourself or even if they're going to let other people know about that you have supplies. Okay, so the reason I ask how much, how well do you trust your neighbors? Because if they're not already part of your survival plan, in other words, if you're not already indoctrinating them as into a survival, into part of your survival team or your mutual assistance group, then you might want to be a little bit weary of uh, or leery of how much you trust your neighbor with that information. All right. I always tell people the only people that should know about your stockpile, your supplies, the the steps that you're taking are the people who are in your survival group. Okay. if that's not your neighbor, if you can't think of your neighbor right now as a worthwhile contributor to your own defense of your home, defense of your family, somebody that's going to pull their own weight with their own supplies, they're not in your survival group. So if you can't think of them like that, don't treat them like that. Don't let them know. Okay, they can turn just as violent. As I always say, you know, asking turns to begging, begging turns to demanding, demanding turns to taking. Okay, keep that in mind. Okay, question number two you need to ask yourself. Are you willing to do bad things in a collapse? 
Now, we talked about how when people are panicked, desperate, afraid, without resources, that they it can bring out the worst in people. We like to think that disasters bring out the best in people, and certainly there are enough stories of that, people pulling together to, to, to join forces after a disaster, be able to rebuild. Okay, there are those stories, but then there are also those stories of the people who where the worst comes out in them. They're the wolves among our society. Okay. Now, that could also happen to you. So are you willing to do bad things in order to protect your family, in order to protect your supplies? When people are knocking on your door because you were known as the local prepper in your town and you have food that they don't, are you willing to do bad things in order to keep them from taking everything that you have? Are you willing are you able to um, defend your your spouse if if she were going to be raped? Okay, this has to do even if you're not in a crisis. I mean, are you willing to do bad things? Now, I also say that because, of course, most people are going to say answer that as yes. But the thing is that you're we are not programmed to be able to do bad things. Most people listening to this right now, unless you've been in combat or you are law enforcement, you've had to really make some hard decisions that could be life or death decisions, then you really don't know. Okay? So we have this programming that you have to overcome. Now that doesn't mean you can't overcome that you wouldn't you wouldn't potentially steal food if you needed to or steal some other person's supplies if you needed to for your own family's survival. Those are bad things. I don't feel good about saying those things. Okay, but if my family were starving, would I steal from a local Red Cross point, from a grocery store, or even from my neighbor if they didn't want to help me out and they had food that I didn't? Well, of course I would. I'm not going to sit there and watch my family starve. Those are those are extreme conditions. But should they happen, you need to face those facts now that you might have to do some things that you're not necessarily proud of. Okay, but. They mean survival. And some of those things might be combat oriented. Okay. Which brings me to number three. Can you kill someone if you have to? If there were a gang that were breaking into your home to steal your things, could you kill them if you had to? If there were, if your wife or your spouse was attacked and, and, and there was a gang there that was dragging her off, would you be able to kill them? If somebody were going to harm your children, would you be able to kill them? Of course, everybody is saying yes right now. But I can tell you right now that saying yes and pulling that trigger are two different things, assuming that you have that you have a gun, okay? Pulling the trigger are two very different things. And I've seen this in combat where people who even are being shot at, I've seen people just curl up into a ball and just start crying and not even able to return fire. I've seen people run the other way. And now these are people, mind you, that have been through basic training, been through many years of force-on-force combat training. That's very realistic, okay? But when it came time to actually pull the trigger on someone else, it something happens in the mind. Now, I can speak to that from, from experience as well, because I can tell you that even being shot at, and having somebody right in my sights, the very first firefight I was in, I did not want to pull the trigger. Even knowing that that person was trying to kill me, it was very difficult. What started going through my head was, well, this person has, um, you know, what if, what if they have children like I have children? 
you know, what if what if their family is worried about them like my family is worried about them? So I started going through all those human emotions of what about that other person, even though that person is trying to kill me. Now, that's going to be even harder for you when you're looking at potentially townsfolk or people that uh, you potentially you even know. Okay, so it's going to be even harder, even if they're doing vile things or trying to get to you. It's going to be very difficult. Now, I can tell you that to overcome this, um, there's only so much you can do. Obviously, if you're we have a lot of soldiers that listen to our to our podcast, and I know you know what I mean. But you've already expanded your combat mindset zone, that, that safe that safe zone, uh, that mental safe zone, because that's an experience that you now have if you've been in combat. Same thing if you're like in law enforcement. You've seen a lot of things. You've seen some very bad things that other people are not going to understand. And as bad as those things may be, when it comes time for a crisis or any sort of a collapse where things get violent, You've you've already gone through that mental process of can I do this and and come back with a response of yes I can because I've done it. Now if you've never been through that sort of any scenario before, the closest I can tell you that you can get is going to be to go hunting. So if you're a hunter, you're at least used to taking a life. Okay. Now um, I remember the first time that that I went hunting. I had I didn't go hunting until a few years ago, and it was it was still a challenge because I'm, I don't consider myself a hunter. I didn't grow up hunting. I uh, well, I didn't grow up shooting anything. We used to go hunting, but I never saw anything. So I don't know that I could have killed anything when I was younger, anyway. But when the first time I went hunting, it was very it was it was very difficult to pull that trigger. There was the same mental process that I went through, even in combat. And this was against obviously maybe because it was something that wasn't shooting back at me. But nonetheless, there is a mental hurdle there for taking another life, even if it's a deer or a boar or whatever it is. Okay, so, um, so that's, that's one thing. Now, the other thing I'll say is if you want to step that up, go after, go hunting after something that isn't something that you're necessarily, um, condition to be able to shoot. Now, what I mean by that is, in fact, I was talking with my dentist today, of all, of all things, and she said that she used to go uh, raccoon hunting when she was younger. And the only time that her and her, her father saw, or I think it was her, might have been her grandfather, saw a raccoon, that the, the dogs chased it up a tree. He was just about ready to shoot it with a shotgun. I think she was like six or seven years old, and she screamed out, no, don't shoot it. Now she had gone out coon hunting, but when it came time, I mean, raccoons are, raccoons are pretty damn cute. <laughs> you know, raccoons are pretty damn cute. It's harder to kill something that's cute than it is to kill something that you maybe can, that is, that is fearsome, like a bear or a, uh, we have wild hogs out here that are, that'll rip you apart. All right. So be going hunting for something like that, if you really want to condition your mind does make a difference, believe it or not. Okay. But there's one other thing that you can do, um, which is going to help you as well. And that comes to question number four, which is, do you have combat training? Now, you don't have to answer this question. You don't have to have been in combat to get combat training. But there are things that you can do to be able to understand force on force threats. Because most people just go if you like if you're in firearms, anything like that, you might go to the live fire range 
and you have a paper target in front of you. And if you've been following any of my work for any time period at all, you know that I'm not a fan of of paper target marksmanship training down at the live fire range, which is which is what 99 percent of the people do out there. OK, it's just not practical from a home defense standpoint, concealed carry standpoint, even a you know collapse survival combat mindset standpoint. It's just not very effective. Does it have its purpose? Yeah, there is. A, there is a reason to go to the live fire range, be able to feel the kick of the gun, be able to get used to the mechanics of the weapon, be able to test your ammunition like we've gone through in other podcasts. There are reasons to go to the live fire range, but. To truly get the experience of being able to shoot at something else that is alive, you really need some sort of force-on-force training. There are some tactical schools out there that do have force-on-force training using simunitions, um, even blanks, airsoft, things like that, where you actually learn tactics, whether it's home defense, personal defense, or combat defense, of how to how to engage an enemy that is trying to engage you. They're a moving target now. They're able to get behind cover. They're able to get behind concealment. They're able to shoot back. They're going to make you flinch. They're going to they're going to potentially shoot you before you shoot them. That's a totally different mindset than going down the live fire range and seeing how close you can get your shot group together. Okay? So, it will help you to overcome that obstacle of shooting at a live human being if you're forced to, if you already have some sort of live interaction where you are pulling the trigger against another live human being. So you can go to these, there are, like I said, there are tactical schools that will, that will allow you to do this, that are geared for this. There's some very good ones out there. Okay. You can also, I mean, but they can be, I get it, they can be kind of expensive. This is actually something you can do even in your own home with a training partner. We have a a program called Dirt Cheap Gun Training that is 67 different uh, drills that you can do at home that, and we show you the different materials that you need. It's very inexpensive, but it's much more realistic than going down to the range. And it's a ton less expensive than it is going down to the range. So more realism, less expense, it's a win-win. So I highly recommend you, you look at doing these sort of drills even in your own home. Now, the other thing that you can do are things like paintball. We recently did a, a, a podcast on l- lessons learned in uh, that my son, my son and I love to go and paintballing. And uh, so there were some lessons learned that we did in that. But paintball does give you a a force on force feel that you can that you're you're trying to shoot somebody else. It is in an outdoor setting, so it's a little bit more like survival collapse type focus. You're typically outdoors, so so that does give you a different perspective as well, uh, even more so than a lot of the force on force training. A lot of the force on force tactical schools for handgun defense are really done in things like you know a parking lot, um, ATM machine, that sort of thing, where you have somebody. Paintball gives you the 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 feeling of actually like kind of being in an outdoor battlefield. So if you're bugging out and you were forced to defend yourself or something along those lines, it can be very realistic that way. And paintballs kind of hurt when you get nailed with them. So you definitely, it's not something you want to feel. So you're, you're more apt to get behind cover and concealment. Okay. All right. So that's uh that's question number four. And so here's question number five, which is going to be a little bit weird for you. It's going to be a little bit of a shocker, but I mean this with all sincerity. And here's question number five. Do you own a machete? Now, why would I ask, do you own a machete? Most people, when they're thinking about personal defense or combat defense in in any sort of a, a disaster or a collapse or a crisis like that, 
are thinking along the lines of firearms. And absolutely, firearms are your best option when it comes to personal security. Preferably, you have a concealable handgun that you can have because you're not going to be going out down to the local Red Cross station for resupply or going out to go check in on other family members or anything like that, sporting an AR-15 at your side. You're going to need something that you don't want other people to see. So a concealed handgun is going to be best. But there are ways that your firearm can be rendered useless in a collapse. So first of all, it could be destroyed in a disaster itself. Okay. It could also just be the elements that you're facing. So it could, they could be, they could be rendered inoperable just basically because either the weapon and or the ammunition uh, falls prey to the elements and is in, is not usable. Okay. So that certainly happens. Your weapon could break. There could be even, I mean, if you have, if the spring breaks or the firing pin breaks or the bolt breaks on an AR-15 or whatever it is, that breaks, you've, you're basically holding a paperweight. Okay, you could also run out of ammunition. Um, you could have, you could have your weapons stolen. They could be destroyed. There's anything that could happen. Now, when that happens, what sort of a backup do you have? So what are the options that you have? If you've ever tried using a, a bow, as an example, if you've ever tried firing, a, a, you know, shooting a, a bow and arrow, it's not easy. Okay, it is really not easy at all. Uh, it's certainly nothing like in the movies, all right? And it's very easy to overtake somebody that has just shot an arrow before they notch another one and, or knock, you know, before they, before they knock another one and get it ready to shoot. All right, so. I don't find the bow and arrow to be, you know, is it is it a good survival weapon? Yes, yeah, certainly can be because you can use it for hunting. It does give you range and things like that. So it has a place. Um, but when it comes to the typical type of attack that you're going to find, it's going to be in close quarters anyway. So what are the weapons that you have available to be able to defend yourself? First thing you're probably going to think of is going to be some sort of a survival knife. Okay, and that is a very formidable weapon. But you have to get very, very close in order to use it. And it might not necessarily intimidate somebody um, in, in order to stop stop uh, them attacking you. So they might go and they might get like, you know, a crowbar or something like that. They might not be afraid of a knife because they know you have to get in, get in close. My favorite weapon, my favorite survival weapon of all, and we have a, a program that t- shows you how to develop an entire survival arsenal, uh, the website is, uh, you can have it for free. It's, ex- uh, uh, bestsurvivalweapons.com. It's our extreme survival weapons guide. Uh, but a machete for me by far is the ultimate survival weapon. And if you remember that crocodile Dundee episode or that, that movie where the, that gang member pulls out a knife and it scares the woman that, that crocodile Dundee is with and she's like, he's got a knife. Aren't you afraid? And he says, that, that that's not a knife. This is a knife. And he pulls out this giant Bowie knife and the, the, the gang member runs away. Well, same thing. If you, even if you have somebody and a lot of people are going to have knives when it comes to a collapse right there, that's going to mostly be the, probably the weapon that people are going to have out there because a lot of people don't have firearms or, you know, they were destroyed also or whatever, but they're going to most likely have a knife. But if you have a machete, you're in you're in a much better position than somebody that has a knife. They'd be stupid once they see a machete to, to go after you. So even if it's a home invasion type of a thing or um, there, I mean, there have been home invasions where people have held people off with swords and machetes. In a survival situation, it's very typical 
or it's it's very explainable for you to have a machete for the purposes of of survival, of chopping wood, things like that. So even if you're stopped by law enforcement, it can be explained to why you have it. Um, so that's one thing is that it's a formidable weapon, but it's also very legal. But when it comes to actual combat, the 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 machete is by far my favorite mid-range to close-range attack weapon. Okay, so if you don't have a machete, then I highly recommend that you get one for survival purposes, even just for things like camping. And and if you do have to use it for survival, chopping wood, you have something there. But also for combat, it's actually the, my favorite weapon. Okay, we actually did an entire DVD on on uh, two DVDs on on combat machete fighting that um, we get a lot of great reviews on. So, but right now, do you have a machete that you can use? All right, if you don't, then you know which where to get one. And the one that I recommend getting right now um, is actually, and we're actually designing our own machete. Uh, specifically for our fighting method right now. So that's going to be a little ways out there, but it's coming. It'll be here eventually. But the one that I use currently is just my standard. It's from Ontario Knife Company. It is the um, the standard machete that is military issue. Uh, a lot of the other ones out there, I just they I don't like at all. I'm not going to name brands, but I can just say they're big names that have put out machetes, and they're really just a piece of crap. Um, the one I like best right now, as far as machetes go, is going to be the standard military issue combat machete from Ontario Knife Company. You can get that on Amazon. Um, I can put a link in the in the, the post for this on the blog for this podcast. I'll put a, a link over there where you can get one of those machetes. Um, but that's the one I recommend getting. Okay. All right. So those are the five questions, and hopefully you've answered all of those honestly, and you've taken notes as far as what you really need to focus in on to be able to really either think about or get the supplies that you need to be able to fill in any gaps that you have. So again, some of the things we talked about really are just a mental shift for you, but they're like, you know, are you willing to do bad things? Now, I don't want you to practice that. Don't go out and shoplift just to be able to build up those, um, build up that, that type of a mindset. Um, but you really at least need to think about these things and understand that they could be part of your reality in any sort of an extreme crisis. Because the typical thing that happens is when those things happen, when that type of violence happens, it's such a shock to people because they never considered that it could ever even happen. So even just thinking about it makes a difference. Okay, and then there are other things that you can do. Hunting does make a difference. Going to paintball makes a difference. These are things that you can do. They're they're fun, and you you know there's a benefit in there for you developing your combat mindset. All right, all right. So um, hopefully you got a lot out of this one. And again, it's all about the action plan. So make up your action plan. This is Jeff Anderson saying: Train hard, stay safe, prepare now. Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.